Welcome back to the London Futurist podcast. Self-driving cars has long been one of the most exciting potential outcomes of advanced artificial intelligence. Contrary to popular belief, humans are actually very good drivers, but even so, well over a million people die on the roads each year. Globally, for people between 12 and 24 years old, road accidents are the most common form of death. Google started its self-driving car project in January 2009 and spun out a separate company, Waymo, in 2016. Expectations were high. Many people, including me, shared hopes that within a few years, humans would no longer need to drive. Some of us also thought that the arrival of self-driving cars would be the signal to everyone else that AI was our most powerful technology and would get people thinking about the technological singularity. They would, in other words, be the canary in the coal mine. The problem of self-driving turned out to be much harder. And insofar as most people think about self-driving cars today at all, they probably think of them as a technology that was overhyped and failed. And it turned out that chatbots, and in particular GPT-4, would be the canary in the coal mine instead. But as so often happens, the hype wasn't wrong. It's just the timing that was wrong. Waymo and Cruise, part of GM, now operate paid for taxi services in San Francisco and Phoenix, and they're demonstrably safer than humans. Chinese companies are also pioneering the technology. One man who knows much more about this than most is our guest today, Timothy Lee, a journalist who writes the newsletter Understanding AI. He was previously a journalist at Ars Technica and the Washington Post, and he has a master's degree in computer science. In recent weeks, Timothy has published some carefully researched and insightful articles about the state of the art in self-driving cars. Timothy, thank you very much for joining the London Futurist podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to meet you, Tim. Let's start with the basics. What is a self-driving car? The US Society of Automotive Engineers publishes a scale from one to five, where level one means no automation, and level five is a vehicle that can drive itself anywhere in the world, in any weather, any road conditions, with no human intervention. And most people would agree that we don't really need level five to remove the risk and boredom from the daily commute. Timothy, what do we need? I really like to break this market down into two segments. Five levels, I think, is a little more than we need. There are cars where they're truly driverless that is designed where there's supposed to never be somebody in the driver's seat. And then there are driver assistance systems where I think Tesla has the best known one. Tesla says they're working on fully driverless, but at least for now, there needs to be a driver behind the driver's seat. I think we'll probably mostly talk about that first category today, the fully driverless vehicles of which, as you said, Waymo and Cruise are the leading examples. Those companies are both focusing initially on taxi services as their first market because one of the advantages of that approach is that they can focus on particular geographical areas. As you said, San Francisco and Phoenix, they can get the technology working really well in those cities and then expand geographically to other cities, but they don't have to figure out how to drive everywhere. If you bought a car that was advertised as self-driving, people would expect it to drive everywhere, whereas a taxi service, you can gradually expand the areas that you have that capability. The other great advantage of a taxi rather than a private consumer's car is that you can defray the cost. It's still pretty expensive technology over much more driving time because a taxi can, in theory, be operating 24 hours a day and there's no privately owned consumer cars that drive that much. Yes, absolutely. And you can also upgrade the hardware over time. So as the sensors get better or computing chips get more powerful, it's much easier to bring the taxi into the shop and upgrade its hardware as whereas with a consumer car. Tesla has been selling cars since 2016 that they advertise as being capable of fully self-driving operation. 
But if it turns out that what's needed is more powerful than what they put back then, then they're going to have kind of a, a problem. I'm not surprised that taxis seem to be the place where this technology is becoming commercially viable the soonest. Can you give us an update on how the taxi trials are going? Yeah, absolutely. So Waymo was the first company to do a fully driverless commercial taxi service. They started in 2020 in Phoenix. And then Cruise is their main competitor. They have been testing in San Francisco. Both companies are now operating in both cities and have been growing. The California authorities just last month gave those companies approval to start charging customers for rides. And so now it's like a real service. There's still a waiting list, but normal people can go to San Francisco and get regular taxi rides for, I believe, most of the city of San Francisco, most times a day. And so it really is like a real thing. It's not just a research prototype or anything like that. And there's been stories of people pranking these self-driving cars, mm-hmm. putting bollards on their bonnets or hoods. Yeah. Is that just a temporary glitch? So part of the way that the companies have made these technology viable is that they're very, very cautious. And so the way they're programmed is that they're not sure about the situation. Their default is to stop. And they don't operate on freeways yet. And so that tends to be pretty safe because on regular roads, if you stop it, you might annoy the person behind you, but most of the time it won't cause an accident. And so I think if you put a bollard on a vehicle, it just gets a little confused and has to kind of phone home and say, hey, is it safe to go or not? And that takes a little while. So that's why it slows it down. I don't think this is going to be a serious problem. In the long run, both because I think people will get over it. Once people get used to it, I think you'll see this happen less. But also, I think the companies will be able to figure out how to deal with it. I think that the people who are doing that in San Francisco are really just, I think, ideologically opposed to cars in general. I think they've basically said this. They don't like self-driving cars because they're cars. But they don't really have, I think, any particular beef with the self-driving aspect in particular. It's just they're cars, and so they don't like them. And as I understand it, California State is very cooperative with these companies and keen to see this technology develop. But the city, ironically, since San Francisco is kind of ground zero for futurist thinking, San Francisco City is less positive and holding things up. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So Governor Gavin Newsom has long been a supporter of self-driving technology, and I think he has been driving state agencies to be supportive. And the way California law is written, there's two agencies that have authority. The Department of Motor Vehicles regulates safety, and then the California Public Utility Commission regulates commercial aspects that regulate taxi services. Both of those agencies have been supportive, and the city of San Francisco doesn't have a lot of authority to limit them if those two agencies say it's okay. I think this has been a long-standing tension in San Francisco. I mean, long before driverless cars came about, the big tech companies have these shuttle buses they use to take their employees from the city of San Francisco down the peninsula to Silicon Valley. Those buses have faced protests. San Francisco, it is a center of technology innovation now, but it also has an older kind of leftist kind of hippie culture that isn't a good fit for technology. So I think as tech money has kind of sloshed into San Francisco, a lot of older residents and people who like that older tradition are not very happy about it. So there's been a lot of friction about this for many years. Yeah, they hate the hate Ashbury crowd. And there was, in fact, a whole book written about this, wasn't it? Douglas Rushkoff wrote a book called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. I have not read that, but yes, absolutely. That's been a thing for a long time. You did a deep dive into the safety reporting of these companies. And I think, if I read you right, you've concluded that you can reasonably say that these cars are already safer than human drivers. Is that right? I would say that's my best guess, particularly for Waymo. As you said at the top, humans are actually very safe. So there's a fatal accident on the roads in the United States about once every 100 million miles. 
And these vehicles have only gone about 8 million miles. So I don't think you can say anything definitive about are they less likely to kill somebody because 8 million miles of human drivers, you wouldn't expect to have any fatalities. But if you look at less severe crashes, for example, police reported crashes happen every half million miles. You'd expect 10 or 15 of those, given the amount of distance that vehicles have driven in San Francisco. And it's less than that. And so they seem to be safer. And in particular, I think you see some difference between Waymo and Cruise. Waymo has been around longer and done a lot more practice driving with safety drivers behind the wheel, and they've had really very few serious accidents, basically no at-fault accidents, and a very small number where somebody else crashed into them. Cruz also has had basically no at-fault accidents, but I think they've had several accidents where, for example, somebody ran a red light and hit them, and so that's mostly the other driver's fault. But I think it's possible that Waymo vehicles are better at anticipating, oh, I'm about to enter an intersection, and it looks like this guy's running a red light, so maybe I should hold back. The data is still preliminary enough that, like I said, my best guess is they're safer, but I don't know that you can say with sort of statistical certainty. just looks good so far. I think we'll need another six months to a year, probably, before we can really start to make definitive statements about it. People used to say that the reason self-driving cars haven't gone as quickly as people had expected is that you need to have a much more general intelligence to deal with all these strange, quirky, unexpected combinations of results. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like we are close enough. We may have good self-driving cars without having solved the fundamental problem of general artificial intelligence. Yeah, one of the strategies related to what I was saying before about how the default is to stop is that they do have the ability to phone home. So if they get to a situation they don't understand, they stop and then they send back sensor data to Waymo or Cruise headquarters and a human being there can check. They don't do teleoperation. They can't directly move the cars, but they can give the cars high-level instructions. And so this is particularly important in emergency sites or construction sites where, say, there is a fire and a fireman's like gesturing which way the car should go the vehicle may or may not be able to recognize what the fireman wants them to do, but a human being at Waymo headquarters can kind of zoom in and figure out, okay, they're trying to tell you to go to the left and help with that. I think that combination of machine and human intelligence works pretty well because 99.9% of the time, it's a normal situation with normal traffic laws and normal vehicle behaviors, and so you can have it be automated. And then some fraction of 1% of the time, it's a weird situation, you need a little human help. And it becomes much more economical to have a human step in in those rare situations than to have a taxi driver that has to be paying attention all the time. It's curious that they decided not to make the cars teleoperatable because, I mean, if you have a car stuck in the middle of a highway and the police are trying to do something, without being at fault, it could cause a lot of trouble. And you might want the base to just be able to drive it off the road. It's odd that they didn't do that. I think they're being very conservative about safety because you'd have to be able to see 360 degrees around the car. And they do have sensors 360 degrees, but it's a little hard. You could send a drone over to do that, I would have thought. I would say the companies haven't talked a ton on the record about why they've chosen to do this. But I think the thinking is there's just too much risk of an oversight. Say you've got somebody who just hasn't quite been trained properly in how to do that. And so it's just safer. And also you don't want, if you're worried about hacking, for example, if there's ability to remotely drive it, you don't want somebody to gain control of that ability. And so the idea is you want the vehicle itself to always be kind of sure that what it's doing is safe. And so you want to only allow the humans to give kind of high-level instructions to say, yes, this route you're thinking about is okay, as opposed to directly driving. Because if you directly drive it, there could be miscommunication or oversights that could cause some kind of problem. If we go back a few years, there were companies such as Uber and Lyft who were very excited about self-driving cars. 
But there's also something else. There were companies who were envisioning freight transport on the highways and that this would be an easy problem because it's quite easy to drive on highways, people said. And maybe for the last mile, there would be a human who would come and help out. So what's happened to these visions of the future? People are still working on that. I am somewhat skeptical. I think it will happen eventually, but I'm skeptical that's going to be the first sort of commercially successful application. And the reason is that I think it's true that in a typical case, freeways are very easy. There's controlled access, so there's not pedestrians or bicyclists, lanes are well marked, etc. But I think the worst case scenario is still pretty chaotic. There can still be somebody broken down on the road. Occasionally, a pedestrian might wander into a freeway. And the consequences are much worse. So if you're on a road with a 50 kilometer an hour speed limit and you have to hit the brakes, it's probably not a big deal. Whereas if you're on a highway with a high speed and you hit the brakes, it takes longer to stop. The car behind you might run into you. So the taxi services we've been talking about so far do not operate on limited access highways. They are focusing on city streets and then they'll, I think, over time add the freeways. I think this is even more so for long-haul trucking because those trucks are so big and heavy. If one of those malfunctioned, it'd be really, really bad. I think we'll get there eventually, but my guess is that we'll sort of have taxi services first everywhere, and then we'll do freight trucking. There are also companies that are working on local delivery services, you know, pizza delivery, grocery delivery, that sort of thing. There's a company called Neuro that is well-funded and is still operating. I honestly have not figured out exactly why they're not moving ahead sooner because one of the advantages they have is there's no passengers in the vehicle. And so they have a somewhat easier safety problem because anytime you're deciding, do I like protect my passenger? Do I protect the person outside? You always can just default to protect the person outside. You can slow it your brakes really hard if you need to. That company is also active. I'm optimistic about them, but they're still kind of in a testing phase. They have not done large scale commercial deployments. I would not be surprised if that happens soon though. There's also companies with little sort of robotic bins wandering around, which were a big thing. There was a company called Starship, yep. which was trialing them a lot on university campuses and other places. Yep. They seem to have faded away. I mean, maybe they're happening in the background, but I don't read about them anymore. I would not say they're fading away. That company is operating at George Mason, one of the companies in the D.C. area, and I've been trying to follow them. I think they're growing. They haven't gotten as much attention because they're not as novel anymore, but they are, I think, on hundreds of campuses and I think are growing pretty robustly. I went and visited George Mason about a year ago and talked to some students. Students were using it. There was, I think, like maybe 20 little restaurants. And so I think that's a very promising business model in higher density places, especially on college campuses where there's not a lot of cars. I absolutely expect that most college campuses and other similar environments are going to have these little sidewalk robots in five or 10 years. Let's talk about what's happening elsewhere in the world. So far, we've mainly been what's happening in America, mm-hmm. but people in the past were saying, well, China's going to leap ahead with driverless cars. Yep. There's even some companies in the UK who claim to have world-beating software or hardware. Do you keep track of that as well? I think the consensus is that China is the kind of number two country for this technology. There's a number of indigenous self-driving projects, and I've gotten their press releases. They say they're doing very well. I just don't speak Chinese and am not in a position to visit China, so it's a little hard for me to evaluate. But I think that they're serious, and I would expect that they're going to have substantial self-driving technology. I have not seen any European companies that strike me as on the leading edge of this. Obviously, there's important German car companies that have done important work. And there's an Israeli company called Mobileye that supplies the hardware for a lot of the driverless assistance systems, and I know they are working on fully driverless technologies. If another company were to get into this market alongside Waymo and Cruise, I would say they're one of the leading candidates. 
But in terms of fully driverless large-scale taxi services, as far as I know, Waymo and Cruise are the only ones doing that in the Western world, and then there's some in China. I think Mobileye was bought by Intel, wasn't it, for about 15 billion bucks? Yes, it was. The Chinese car companies are starting to make inroads into America and Europe, and they're starting to really worry the manufacturers in Europe and America. And that's initially based on their great cost advantage in EV, electric technology. But they're certainly intending, or so they say, to deploy self-driving technology quickly. Of course, they can only go as fast as the regulators allow. But I think we can see the Chinese as being a major force. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the Chinese will face a lot of friction because I think these are better thought of as services rather than products. And in the same way that I think there's been a lot of resistance to Chinese telecom providers, companies like Huawei providing equipment because of concerns about surveillance and things like that, I would personally be pretty reluctant to have a Chinese-operated driverless taxi service in an American city because in the case of a war or in the case of the Chinese government wanting to spy on people, this is not like a microwave where you just ship it and then it's just working in your house. It's going to have a connection back to some server in China that's providing map updates and software updates and stuff like that. You really would want to be able to audit it to make sure it's trustworthy. And so I think you want it to be an American company or an American ally as opposed to a company that might have a difficult relationship with Western countries. Timothy, this is the London Futurist podcast, so we're about to ask you questions about the future. All right. What do you think is likely in the next three to five years? Are we going to take self-driving cars for granted? Will they still be a novelty? Will there be good scenarios ahead or bad scenarios perhaps? I think the way to think about this is really to look back at the way Uber and Lyft expanded. I think it is going to be a service for the first decade or so, and I think it'll take time for them to scale up, maybe even more time because Uber and Lyft, of course, had this gig economy model where the driver would bring their own car, whereas at least for now, Waymo and Cruise's plan is they're going to own and build their own fleets. And so it's going to take a number of years, I think, for them to scale up. Right now, they're in two to four cities. Both companies, I think, are working in Austin and Los Angeles. Cruise has announced, I think, like six to eight additional cities in the United States. Um, I'm a little skeptical if they're going to do that as quickly as they've said. Waymo has said they're going to grow about 10x over the next year. Cruise has set a goal of a billion dollars in revenue, which would be about a 50x growth by 2025. Those are pretty ambitious numbers. But if you work that out, that's still a small fraction of Uber's revenue, even the U.S. to say in the world. And so I would say five to 10 years from now, it'll be a lot like Uber and Lyft in, say, 2015 where very clearly is a viable business. It's in a lot of cities, but there's still a lot of growth, still a lot of places where people aren't doing it. Looking a little further out, I think 10 to 15 years from now, yes, I think it'll be every major city, a lot of cities in the developed world, like in the UK. And I think you'll start to see these companies thinking about other markets. Long-haul trucking, like we talked about, eventually I assume you'll be able to buy a car with kind of a Waymo ability baked in, and you'll have to pay a subscription fee to get the self-driving technology. Yeah, I think five to 10 years to kind of scale up the taxi part. And then after that, you'll see them kind of branching out into other markets. And maybe 20 years from now, it'll be kind of table stakes for every vehicle to have some kind of self-driving ability. Assuming we don't get to artificial general intelligence and super intelligence by then. Maybe, yeah. There's a famous pair of photographs, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners have seen. David referred to it in a previous episode, where on Broadway in New York on Easter Day, I think it was in 1903, there was 
picture of a whole load of cars and almost all of them were horse-drawn carriages. There was one motor car. Mm-hmm. And then about 10 years later, the situation was reversed. They're all motor cars except for one sad-looking horse-drawn vehicle. Mm-hmm. And so you can make a transition that fast in 10 years and converting most cities to self-driving cars in 20 years doesn't seem implausible. And if you're growing at 10x each year, who knows whether they can maintain that. But if they did, then that sort of exponential superpower growth can achieve remarkable results in a relatively short time. Yeah, I mean, they're growing from a very small base now, so I do not think they're going to maintain that 10x growth in a year. Like I said, it's a capital-intensive kind of thing. Like, they're building their own vehicles. I think it's going to take a few years to really scale up to a large scale. Do you buy the argument that after the technological change, there'll be social implications, just as when there were horseless carriages, people invented things called suburbs and car parks? Yep. Are we going to undo having so many car parks because people won't feel the need to own cars anymore? Yeah, I absolutely think that there'll be big implications for the design of cities and urban areas. I think it's a little hard to say what the direction of that will be. So one obvious thing is you can imagine, okay, you don't have to drive your car, so maybe you're happy to have a longer commute. And so you could imagine people living further out from the city, and maybe you have a two-hour commute, but that's fine because you can do your email on the road. So that's one possibility. But on the flip side, as you said, if taxis become much cheaper, then maybe people decide they don't want to own a car at all. And then you need less parking and there's less political opposition to denser building. And so maybe you have denser cities. Maybe you have both those things. Maybe you have both very, very dense Manhattan and central London become even denser, but also there's suburbs sprawl out more. So that's one area. I do think it'll have big implications for retail because I think delivery services will become much cheaper and more convenient. And so I would not be surprised if we have fewer retail stores and more warehouses where instead of going down to the corner store for some milk, you just have a little robot come and bring it to you. And that obviously could have all kinds of knock-on effects and how cities are organized and neighborhoods are organized and stuff like that. So yeah, I think it has big implications, but it's a little hard to game out. I also think one of the things people underestimate is the the shape of the car today, you know, this kind of standard five-seat trunk shape of the car. Cars have that form because we buy one car for everything. We need it for daily commuting and for road trips and for hauling stuff around. And I think in a world where it's a lot easier to hail a vehicle, I think we'll see more variety. I think the cars people commute in might get smaller. You might have one or two seat vehicles because that's all you need for commuting. You can imagine vehicles for road trips that have a lot more space, maybe lay flat beds where you can go on a road trip and sleep while the car drives itself. So I think we'll see kind of a Cambrian explosion of vehicle types because Each vehicle can be customized for a certain use, and when you need a vehicle, you'll call the kind of vehicle you need for your specific trip, as opposed to having one vehicle that has enough seats for your whole family and some cargo. You can think of some very outre scenarios. I like the idea of your living room turning into a motorhome, so it unplugs itself from your house and sets off on a journey, and you have a sort of a fold-down bed in it, and you dial in where you want to go, take me to Edinburgh or take me to Boston wake me up when we get there and you just go to sleep and you wake up and put your destination. Yep. That could be a lot of fun. Yep, absolutely. And the other concern there is, you know, if you crash, that could be dangerous, but hopefully over time crashes will become less common and so maybe people just won't worry about that. I really do think the transition from horses to cars is a good example. Like Walmart wouldn't exist if the automobile didn't exist, but nobody inventing the car like realized, oh, we're going to have suburbs with big box stores and cul-de-sacs and stuff. We just have to 
have the technology and then kind of see what new things people invent based on it being available. It sounds like what's holding things up is no longer political will or questions about insurance, things that were often spoken of in the past. It's just a matter of technicalities, solving some technical issues and being thoughtful and patient about rolling out. Do you see it like that? I think so. One big question is, when does the first fatal accident happen? Hopefully not for a long time. I think as long as there's zero fatal accidents, these companies will have a strong argument that this technology is safer and it'll be mostly logistical barriers, at least here in the U.S. In the U.S., I've actually been surprised. There's very little regulatory barriers. I think California probably has the strictest state laws in terms of there's a lot of oversight and disclosure, but they haven't blocked their expansion. A lot of other states like Texas, Arizona, Florida really have very minimal regulations. So yeah, I think as long as they're not killing anybody, they'll have pretty much an open road. I think some European countries have stricter rules. I have not done the reporting to say exactly what that is. But yeah, there's a lot of room to expand. But if we have a fatal accident, I can see a backlash and maybe suddenly it'll be different. I think some of our listeners will be pricking their ears up and thinking, hang on a minute, there has been a fatal accident, hasn't there? Elaine Hertzberg was killed in 2018 by an Uber. That's right. That crash in 2018 with Elaine Herzberg, that basically destroyed Uber's program. Arizona put additional restrictions on them when that happened, and they basically never recovered from that. I don't think their technology was all that good, which is why they ran into somebody. Maybe they wouldn't have succeeded anyway. But yes, I think it's the same thing. Like if either Waymore or Cruz does run somebody over in a way that is clearly their fault, that might be an existential risk for that company, and maybe it should be. So yes, you're completely right. There has been one fatal crash with these fully driverless vehicles. I think most people in the industry would argue that Uber's safety procedures were not nearly high enough. I agree. In fact, actually, just quite recently, in July, the driver got three years probation for that accident. And the whole debate about how you most safely make this transition is fascinating. When Google started Waymo, they weren't sure whether they would go for the assisted driving approach that Tesla stuck with or go straight to full self-driving. Mm-hmm. And they chose the latter because they found that their safety drivers, who weren't driving the cars but were responsible for overseeing them, were exhibiting really dangerous behaviors like turning around at 70 miles an hour and looking for a computer in the back of the car and things like that. So they realized that it's just really hard to get humans to pay attention when a machine appears to be driving the thing very safely. Yeah. Tesla's always said, no, no, we're sticking with the assisted driving. And Tesla gets a lot of bad press from some quarters, partly because of its owner's erratic behavior, but because they have had more incidents, because humans don't pay attention when we should. Yeah. So a couple caveats. Google, the story you told is right, but it wasn't the professional safety drivers. What happened was Google let its own employees, just like random engineers, try the technology out. And they did give them a little bit of training, but that wasn't their job. And yes, those handle it poorly. Waymo has done millions of miles of driving with professional safety drivers whose job is to pay attention. And I think they do a pretty good job. So it's possible if you're paying somebody and give them a lot of training, then yes, you can get them to pay attention. But if it's a customer, obviously you can't force a customer to go through a bunch of training and pay attention. So yes, absolutely. I think that's why Google decided not to do that because they didn't think that customers would pay enough attention. With Tesla, they've definitely had more crashes. They've also had more miles. So I don't think it's entirely clear how dangerous FSD is. I personally think that Waymo's approach is better. But just to be fair, Tesla has had vastly more miles because they've got thousands of customer vehicles testing their technology. And so that is one reason that they've had fatal crashes in Waymo and Cruise have not. And there's a very interesting thing happening with Tesla. Over the last two or three years, Musk has 
gone down a right-wing rabbit hole. And that will not endear him to a lot of Tesla owners. A lot of Tesla owners are Democrats. Mm. Nobody really knows exactly why he's done it. Some people say it's because one of his kids was transgender and that really wound him up. Other people say it was the way that California treated Tesla during the shutdown in the pandemic. But there's no doubt he is become really quite right wing. Is there any noticeable impact on Tesla purchases? The company seems to be doing incredibly well. Its stock price is raging away. Yeah. So I guess the Democrat drivers are just forgiving him, are they? I think that the spike in gasoline prices a couple of years ago just really supercharged demand for EVs. And so as the biggest EV company, they were just going to have a big spike in demand. Honestly, like one of my theories, I don't think this is really why Elon did this, but there are a lot of other companies making EVs now. And if the result is that like right-wingers own the libs by purchasing Teslas and then the Democrats all buy Ford or Toyota or whatever... Like, that wouldn't be a terrible situation because it's not hard to get liberals to buy EVs, right? But it might be hard to get conservatives. And so if, if Tesla gets this kind of right-wing image and a different clientele buys it, like, there's a lot of Republicans in the U.S. And in the long run, I think everybody's going to have EVs. So I don't like all the things that Musk has done in the last couple of years. But I'm not sure from a perspective of customer interest in EVs, I'm not sure it's really been a negative the way he's handled it. To start winding up, Timothy, how much of a fan of these vehicles are you? When you get near San Francisco or Phoenix, do you track them down and say, I want to be transported in one of these self-driving cars? Or are you cautiously looking for human assistance? So I was last in San Francisco in February. And at that point, they had a waiting list and I did not get off the waiting list. So I have not tried. It's been a couple of years since I've tried one of these vehicles. But absolutely, if it was operating in my city, I would feel totally comfortable riding in them. I think they're, if not safer than human drivers, certainly on par with human drivers. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of any particular company, but the long-term potential of this, like as you said at the top, there's 40,000 people in the U.S., million people worldwide killed in car accidents every year. And I think this technology is, is the technology that has the most potential to reduce that, as well as driving's boring. People would like to do something else with that time. So the human welfare benefits when this technology is mature and safe and widely deployed, I think are very large. So that's one of the reasons I've been covering this field since about 2017. And that's one of the reasons I got into it, because I think it is going to be very important in the long run. I would love to have a drive in a self-driving car. I'm coming to the States for October, but unfortunately, it's all going to be on the East Coast. And I don't think there's any public trials on the East Coast yet. Nope. It's a great shame. Cruise has announced Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Miami. So there are going to be some East Coast cities where they're at least collecting map data and doing limited tests. But I think it'll be a year or two before there's a commercial service you can try. We talked about a possible future scenario in which there's a fatal accident involving a self-driving car, but are there other scenarios in which there's a fatal accident with a huge tailback involving a human driver and people say, why was this human driving this car? If only they'd used self-driving, this wouldn't have happened. Or is that just a fantasy? Well, like you said, a million people a year, that happens. And the ways that human reasons kill people are like very predictable, right? Dark driving, people looking at their cell phones, teenagers who are very inexperienced. And then people just say, well, that's just what happens. I think there absolutely is going to be a double standard. Even if these AV companies get to 100 million miles before they kill the first person, so they're in line with what humans do, there's still going to be a backlash because people are not good at thinking about statistics. And so it's just the idea of a robot killing you is scarier than the idea of a drunk driver killing you. But I think also people, I think, do have an intuitive sense that technology is reliable and safe. I've actually been pleasantly surprised. Tesla has had several fatal accidents. I would like to see some changes to the way Tesla operates. 
But there's not been much political momentum to shut Tesla down or to make them stop doing FSD. And I think that's probably good overall. I think people understand that transportation involves some fatalities and that this technology is probably going to be good in the long run. So we want to have a certain amount of forbearance in how it's regulated. No, I agree. I was quite surprised in 2018 when the Uber crash happened that everybody, the whole industry wasn't shut down. And I'm always surprised that Tesla accidents don't lead to a greater shutdown. I think people are showing a fair amount of patience with it. And I'm pretty sure that sometime it could be 10, 20, 30 years away, who knows. There is going to be a time when you're just not going to be able to drive a car on a public road because humans aren't safe enough. And people are going to say, what on earth do you think you're doing? Right. Get a robot to do that. Right. I mean, one thing that might happen, actually, is they might make kind of uncrashable cars. I mean, there's a little bit of this already, right? You've got automatic emergency braking, where in certain cases, it'll stop you. Maybe that technology will get better and better. And so you'll get to, quote unquote, drive your car. But if you try to do anything dangerous, it'll be like, oh, sorry, you can't do that. Or you have to go and drive your car on a racetrack, a specially designed racetrack, and you sign a million documents. Yes. In the long run, it'll be like riding a horse. You'll be able to do it on a private track with training and a lot of oversight. And that's fine. Like people skydive and stuff. So it's fine to have dangerous hobbies. But yes, I think in the very long run, it'll be something people do for fun in very limited situations. Yeah. Well, Timothy, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. It's a really exciting technology and I've really enjoyed your articles about it and highly recommend people go and track those down. Well, thank you. It's been great. I've enjoyed the conversation too. And to any of our listeners, if you are a champion for European technology in driverless cars, if you think that you can do better than the likes of Waymo and Cruise, and you want to explain that to our listeners, please do get in touch. Thanks, Timothy, for bringing us up to date and encouraging us with a positive vision of where we're going to be quite soon. Thank you so much. <laughs>